we're going to be turning for the next three weeks actually to a sermon that Jesus preached. It's recorded for us in Matthew 5 through 7, and so I invite you to take a Bible and to open it. But we're going to kind of look at this entire sermon all three weeks. So it's not going to be where we start in chapter 5 and then go to chapter 6 and on to chapter 7. We're going to look at this whole message, but it is uh, sort of one of the larger recorded teachings we have of Jesus. He told many stories. He said things in conversations to his disciples. And so we have a recording of many, many different things he said. But this is one of the unique times where he is sitting down with his disciples and he is teaching them and and basically uh, preaching to them a message of who he is and what he's all about. When we come to it, we're in Matthew chapter 5. And it wouldn't have been apparent to most of the people that would have been there sitting and listening to Jesus. But had we started in Matthew chapter one and gone through the first four chapters, Matthew has already told us that Jesus is a king. That he came from a kingly line, and so he came from a a family history that had royalty in its background. He was born in a city where kings were born, in Bethlehem, where the greatest king of Israel, King David, was born. That's where Jesus was born. And then there were wise men from the east who came wanting to give gifts to the person who was born as the king of the Jews. And the news of that actually offended the reigning king. His name was King Herod. And he didn't like the idea that somebody else was thought of as a king. And so his reaction to it was actually quite bloody, actually Demonic would be the best way to describe it. He ordered that in the town of Bethlehem that all the male children under two years old would be executed because he didn't even want to take the time to figure out who's this person they're talking about. And he was a violent man. And so he ordered his soldiers to go to Bethlehem and to execute the young men in that city, what we call the massacre of the innocents. And so now Jesus, he wasn't in Bethlehem at the time, and so he's still alive. He was grown into now full adulthood, and he gives his opening, if you will, message or manifesto. What kind of a king is he? What kind of a kingdom is he about? And so everyone's waiting to hear what Jesus is going to say about who he is and how maybe he's going to be different than the other options that exist or who of all the options that are around, who he's going to align with. Many people were hoping for a king. They were longing for a Messiah to come. And so there was a whole section of Jews in the first century that were waiting for a leader that would come, a king, so that they could get together and start fighting against Rome. They wanted a military leader to come, to lead a revolution so that they could claim independence from the powers that be. There were other Jews, though, who said, guys, we don't have to do it the violent way. Actually, if we just compromise with them, if we give in a little bit to them, they'll do quite a bit for us, and they'll leave us on our own. And so their method was a method of compromise. If, if we just let go of a few things here and there and show that we're on their side, we scratch their back, they'll scratch our back. And so there was a whole now leadership in the temple of Jesus' day that basically operated like that. They winked their eye at Rome and Rome winked their eye at them and said, you can have your religious services as long as you make sure everyone stays in line and does exactly what we do. So when Jesus comes around and it's, the word is getting out that he's a king, the question is, well, what's he going to be? Is he going to be like the ones that say, 
It's time for revolution. Let's start fighting. Or is he going to be one of the ones that says, hey guys, let's compromise. <laughs> There's an easier way to do this. Let's give in a little bit. Let's relax some of the laws. Let's, let's, let's neglect some of the rules and just make peace with Rome. Well, in these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus affirms and, and gives a message of a completely different way. He doesn't encourage anyone into armed revolution And he doesn't encourage the relaxing of any of the law or his Jewish identity. He charts a completely unique and distinct message and way about his kingdom. And we have that recorded for us in this sermon. We get to look at what Jesus said to his followers. So the next couple of weeks, we're not hearing a sermon just from someone here at Lakeside. We're together looking at the wisest man who ever lived, preaching a sermon about the greatest subject we could ever consider that has the most significant ramifications for the destiny of your soul and mine. It's it's absolutely critical that we take Jesus seriously in what he had to say about who he was as a king and what his kingdom is all about. And we get that in Matthew 5 through 7. So you're going to want your Bible open the entire time since we're not going to read through it in order. We're going to jump around to different parts of it. We're going to begin by looking at what Jesus said in this sermon about God. What did Jesus, when he came onto the scene and people sat down to listen to him, what did he say about God? And so I invite you to go first to verse 43 of chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 43. If you're using one of these Bibles provided for you, it's on page 811. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so that's where we'll stop at the moment. One of the first things he says about God to everyone is that there is a way in which God is gracious to everyone. There is a grace that God offers that is common to everyone. He says, to be like your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. And so he says, God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone that exists. Whether or not they know it, whether or not they acknowledge it, he is the creator and the sustainer of everything that exists. And he has provided a certain amount of common grace that every one of us experiences so that it's 60 degrees outside right now in January. And that's true for all of us. That's not just true for you or just true for me and somehow we get this little beam that other people don't get. 
and then tomorrow it'll be a completely different story, and that will be true for all of us. Irrespective of what we do today or how we live our lives or the choices we make, when we dismiss from here and you go to lunch, whether you go to lunch at home or you go out to eat, you might decide to pause before you eat and say, thank you, God, for the provision of this food. Thank you that this tastes so good, that we have taste buds and there are people who know how to make these things. And you'll enjoy it. But someone else who doesn't stop, who doesn't say thank you for any of it, you know what? They'll still enjoy it if it's good. It's still going to taste good to them. If they go to the rail, it is still going to be a really good burger that they get. It doesn't matter whether they thank God or not. It's true in the experience of love and relationships. Some of you pray to God and say, help me to be a better spouse or help me in this dating relationship that I'm in to make wise choices. And there are all kinds of people that don't care what God's opinion is about who a good spouse might be and they're hanging out with someone and there's still an experience in relationships that whether they acknowledge God or not, there is a goodness and a grace that they will experience inside of it. Because God has given a certain level of his grace to all of his creation. It falls on the just and the unjust. And in the same way, there's an experience of pain in this world and sickness and suffering that is also common to people whether they're in the kingdom or not. So he's just saying from the beginning, coming into the kingdom is not the way to avoid the common experiences of what it means to be a human being. There's nothing in this sermon that says, if you just join the kingdom, you'll never suffer, no one will ever get sick, you'll never feel pain. No, he says, there is a sense in which there are blessings that all of us will experience and there are trials that all of us will experience because they're just common to our humanity. Then if your Bible is still open, if you look at chapter 6, he talks about another way in which he provides for the whole world. In 626, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and you, are you not of more value than they? And then jump to verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So there again, Jesus is telling us that God is the sovereign one over all that he made. He makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He made everyone, he sustains everyone, and he makes and sustains all of creation that animals are fed and that grass grows and that flowers bloom because that's how God made the world. He's sovereign over it. And once, as he's established that, there's, there's not this one God and then a couple of other gods who do all these other things, which would have been fairly common in Jesus' day of other people to think. He says there's one God over all of it. There's not a sun god and a moon god and a rain god and a god for uh, fertility. No, no, no. There's one god who's over it all. He's in charge. He's the sovereign. And the majority of the sermon goes to great lengths to say, you and I cannot fool him. 
He knows everything. He can't be tricked. And he can't be fooled. And so this is now Jesus talking about worshiping God. So he he describes God to us and says, he's the sovereign over all. He makes the rain fall and the just and the unjust. Then he also has some things to say about approaching this God or worshiping this God. And in chapter five, what he had done, he described several different categories. If you just have the headings open to you, you'll see uh, in in chapter five, anger and then lust and then divorce and oaths and retaliations. And in each of these things, What Jesus is saying to people is that God knows not just what we do, but he knows what's inside of our hearts and what we think and what we desire. And so he's warning everyone. He's saying, don't think you're on safe grounds if you just never murder anyone. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder. But actually, you're not even supposed to be angry at your brother without a cause. And God knows whether or not you're angry. And he says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I want you to know that God actually sees inside your heart and he knows the extent to which you lust after and desire what maybe sometimes you do not act upon. And then the same thing as it relates to divorce, oath, retaliation. He's he's basically saying to them, you can come up with all these ways of externally acting and behaving one way. But in everything you do, you and I never fool God. He knows exactly what the thoughts and the intentions are of our heart. So that at the end, which is the part that we read when he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Here, I don't think he's saying perfect in the sense of without mistakes, although that's true of God, that he is perfect in the sense that he makes no mistakes. I think in view here, though, is perfect without distinctions. In other words, he's just described several ways in which you and I can act one way, but really believe and think another way. And he's saying, God's not like that. He's perfect. Everything he does comes from who he is. And so when he acts and extends his grace, that's because he's a gracious God. When he does good things, it's because he's a good person. There is complete integrity in God. He's perfect. He's always consistent. Who he is, he always is. He's perfect. And he can't be fooled. His knowledge is perfect. If you look in verse 6, Jesus is talking about prayer. And he says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what you need before you ask him. And then later he basically says the same thing when he's talking about their physical needs, need for food and shelter and clothing. He says, your father knows exactly what it is that you need. And so in chapter five, he described all these ways where people might try to act one way on the outside while inside they think and feel and desire a different way. In chapter six, he talks about three different things, giving to the poor, praying and fasting. And in each of those, he says, I'd rather you do it in secret than do it in such a way so that other people will think good of you. So he says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, 
when you fast, really believe that your father sees what goes on in secret. He knows what goes on in secret. And he knows and rewards what happens in secret. You don't have to seek your own reward for what you do when you really believe that God sees it all. And so there again, he's just reiterating the point. It is not possible to trick God or to fool him. So you and I should not spend any effort, not even two seconds, trying to trick him. Trying to pretend things that we don't really mean. Because he already knows. He knows what's inside our heart. And so we can't, in chapter 5, deceive him by not acting on what's there. And in chapter 6, even when we act in good ways... He knows if we're doing that really just for ourselves or just so that people will praise us. And in the same way, we can't trick him. And so you and I would say, well, what are we supposed to do? (laughs) If he knows everything and there's no way in which we can fool him or trick him or make ourselves appear better than we could possibly appear, then what are we supposed to do if it's impossible to fool him? Well, that's where he started the sermon in Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew chapter 5. These are the opening lines of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, Jesus is saying it is impossible to fool God, but it is possible to know him. And it is possible to seek him. We can't with all of our best effort in any way trick him, but we really, really can come to him. We really, really can know him if we come to him in poverty of spirit, in weeping and repentance over our sin, and out of a sense of meekness, not thinking that somehow we're informing God or he needs us, but recognizing his greatness, his grandeur, and just what an absolute privilege it is that we would get to come to him. And that's what Jesus is saying about worshiping God. All of that is summed up in the Gospel of John when John records Jesus saying, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's how we worship him. In spirit and in truth. But there's all kinds of ways that Jesus has just described where we could be doing the actions of worship and the activities of worship, but we're not really worshiping God. That's part of why Jesus was fairly confrontational and offensive to some people when he preached. Because he didn't just give them a high five for saying, hey, you showed up to synagogue today, great job. You know how many people are sleeping in today? You showed up. No, he was much more likely to say, look, there's all kinds of ways you can be sitting right here you could be fasting right now, praying right now. You could, you could have just written a check for all the needy people that you know about. 
And there's a way that you could have done all of that and not really been worshiping God. Because it wasn't in spirit and it wasn't in truth. And so Jesus, when he talks about all the different laws, he has to say to people, don't think I'm, I'm trying to relax the law. That was one of the accusations that people came and said, he can't be the king because he doesn't seem to, to treat the Torah and the law the way he should. And Jesus is saying, I'm not doing away with any of it. I'm just saying all of it provides a window deeper into our souls. And we need to know how God really evaluates us in light of the law. He looks down deep. He doesn't just stay on the surface. He doesn't just look at the superficial. And so if you look then to chapter 6, at the very end when Jesus is talking about anxiety. At the very end of chapter 6, maybe we'll pick it up at verse 25. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And that basic that phrase there at the end, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, is what shapes and forms in our mission statement as a church to say that we exist to love God that the very first and the main thing we want to be about is seeking the kingdom of God and helping other people seek the kingdom of God, believing that if we really seek him and we really desire to know him with no pretense, with no show, just our hearts fully committed, passionately seeking after him, all the other things will be added, will be taken care of. And so if we look at that whole list in chapter 5, those are all still things we struggle with. Is anger and violence still an ongoing issue in the 21st century? Absolutely it is. Are families still having a tremendous amount of conflict in and among themselves? Absolutely. Is lust still a problem in the 21st century? Absolutely it is. But there's a way in which we could talk about anger for a long period of time even talk about lust and all of its problems for a very long period of time. And we could do quite a bit to guilt people into changing, into manipulating them into changing. But at the end of the day, if their heart doesn't change, the problem will persist. If what they desire deep down inside does not change, 
There's no long-term solution. And Jesus is saying we seek after the kingdom first because in seeking after God, when our heart desires him and more of him and wants to be like him and wants to follow him and all of his perfection, then that has a way of dealing with the anger that's in our hearts. That has a way of dealing with the lust that is in our hearts or the tendency we have to lie and to deceive. It's when we seek him that all those other things They don't necessarily get resolved immediately or dramatically, but those are the symptoms of a deeper problem. And if all we want to do is treat symptoms, we can treat anger, we can treat lust, we can treat lying, we can treat the unfaithfulness of promises and covenants that exist in our day. But if we want to get below those symptoms into root causes... The fundamental issue is that we do not worship God like we should. And we do not honor him and acknowledge him as the sovereign over all who knows all things. Because if we really lived in light of that, we wouldn't spend any of that time trying to trick him or anyone else in our relationship with him. But when we really acknowledge that he is who he said he is, who Jesus revealed them to be in this message, we see that there's nothing we could give our time and attention and effort to more than seeking his kingdom, his will, his ways. And so when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter six, the prayer that he gives them is that it opens by saying, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because it is in the fulfillment of those things, when God is really honored and his name is hallowed, and we desire his kingdom to come, then yes, we'll know about our daily bread. We'll deal with our need for forgiveness and the need to forgive other people, and we will find strength to resist temptation. But we have to start with God himself. Do we know him? Are we relating to him in spirit and in truth? And then one of the most amazing things about this sermon is Jesus is talking about God and he's talking about worshiping God. Is Jesus is at the same time he is talking about being God. In this sermon, Jesus says some amazing things about who he is in relation to God. Just two verses or two sections. Look in Matthew five seventeen. As Jesus is talking about this, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish, abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's quite an amazing statement that Jesus is saying on this mount, on this hillside, in Galilee with his disciples, he just said, he has come to fulfill all the law and the prophets. Who says that? And then look at the end of chapter 7. This is the close of the sermon. Beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as scribes. So at the beginning, Jesus said that he was going to fulfill all the law and the prophets. And at the end, he said, he's going to be the one on judgment day to whom everyone will give an account. And that anyone who follows his words and places their life, their destiny, their hope, their future on what he had to say is laying their life on the rock, on a foundation that will endure. And anyone who does not, when the floods come, what they've worked for, what they've tried to pretend that exists will be washed away. So this is the greatest teacher we've ever known talking about the most important subjects we could ever consider and presenting himself to the world. Say all the questions you have, all the things you are wondering, I am here in the flesh interpreting all the law and the prophets for you, presenting myself as the foundation that you can build your life upon. And so you have to choose if you're going to listen to me and follow me or if you're going to reject me and move on from me. But that's how he presents himself so that everyone walks away and says, no one teaches with this kind of authority. Everyone else, they would reference back to someone, they would quote another rabbi who quoted another rabbi much like presentations are given today. Jesus boldly claimed that he was the person that the world had to wrestle with. Who he is, why he matters, what his life was all about. And so that's what we commit ourselves to as a church, is to provide as many opportunities as possible to people to consider who God is and what he's had to say and whether or not they really know him. There is no other activity or no other program that we could do that carries that kind of weight. And as we together keep that as a church, our priority to worship him and to seek his kingdom, then we'll see all kinds of other things added on to that in the life of our church and in our congregation and in our community. But we have to keep first things first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and are thankful that we're not just left with the thoughts or ideas of any person that is alive today. I thank you for the freedom that it is just for me to to not have to think of my own insights into life as if I've experienced um, almost anything. 
but that it's possible to look outside of ourselves and to look to you, to look to your son, your one and only unique son, and to consider what he had to say about who you are, about what it means to follow you, and how every single one of us has to stand before him. So we pray that you would help us to be the type of people that seek first your kingdom. And that when we see symptoms in our own lives that manifest that we're not doing that in whatever way they are, that you would help us to go beyond those symptoms and to allow ourselves to really be open and examined before you and to consider whether or not we really know you or really love you. Even as this song is sung now, Father, and some of us express our hope in you and our confidence in you, we pray that if there's anyone here who who cannot express these thoughts and these words with honesty, that they would feel no pressure to sing them, but just to take an opportunity to reflect upon them. In your son's name we pray, amen.